Hi everybody, welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. Today it's my pleasure to discuss myocarditis with Dr. Behina Heidecker from Berlin in Germany. We talk all about a paper that she wrote with co-authors Melina Muller and Leslie Cooper, which discusses diagnosis, risk stratification and management of myocarditis. And also we look to the future and what gets her excited about caring for patients with myocarditis and what developments in terms of new therapies and diagnostics we might see over the next few years. I hope you enjoy the show and please do feel free to leave us a review in whichever app you get your podcast from. It really does help us to reach new listeners and makes a difference to how we're perceived by the all-knowing algorithms out there. Thanks very much. Maybe we can start off, if it's okay with you, by having you introduce yourself for the heart audience. Um, who are you? Where do you work? And, uh, and what do you do? Yeah, hello. I'm Bettina Heidecker. I'm a physician scientist. I work as the head of heart failure at the Charité Campus Benjamin Franklin in Berlin, Germany. And basically, I'm from Austria, graduated in 2006 in Innsbruck, and then did my training in the US. And it's a great pleasure to meet you today and for you to join me on the podcast. I wanted to get you on to talk about a paper, an education in heart peace that you've recently written with co-author Melina Muller and Leslie Cooper. The paper is called Diagnosis, Risk, Stratification and Management of Myocarditis. Obviously, a, a very broad area and a super comprehensive paper that I encourage everybody to go and read. The paper will be free for a few weeks after the podcast comes out, so everybody will be able to enjoy it. But maybe we can start off by talking a little bit, uh, Bettina, about the epidemiology of myocarditis. What can you tell me about that? How common is it? Yeah, it was very long underestimated how common it is. So it's estimated that there are 1.8 million cases per year. Uh, we've, we've also described that in another paper. And it's underdiagnosed because for a long time, people thought that it's a rare disease. And also there are different diagnostic standards that are used, but now we actually um, see it much more commonly. And when we looked at now recently, because there's more attention on myocarditis, also due to COVID, which made it much more common and after vaccines, um, we actually see overall after vaccines about one to 10 cases per 1 million vaccines. But the risk with COVID-19 is actually six times higher with, with COVID. So, yeah. So getting myocarditis from COVID is actually much uh, higher risk than from the vaccine. That's very interesting. And I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that again in the link with COVID and the link with vac uh, vaccination. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the mortality of the disease, if you're unlucky enough to have myocarditis, you, you talk in your paper between ages 35 to 39, it's about one in 72 for men and one in 87 for women, but it's much higher for older people. Yes, that is unfortunately correct. Um, it's more common in younger, but um, it's riskier most likely also because they don't have as much reserves. And um, it's more common in young people, especially from the ages 15 to 30s, and it's more common in men. Okay. And what can you tell us about the causes, the etiology of myocarditis? The etiology is 
are very broad and there's a lot of possible etiologies. Um, it can be viral. That's most common in our area. Bacterial, toxic, also from medications, you can get myocarditis. There are autoimmune diseases um, that can affect the heart because the autoimmune disease is a systemic problem so it of the immune system so it can affect the heart as well like in lupus for example then also increasingly we see checkpoint inhibitor induced myocarditis because it's uh, the the checkpoint inhibitors are very successful in advanced cancer so the use will certainly increase but what they do is it's a form of immune therapy so they disinhibit basically the immune system and so there is a risk for autoimmune reactions so we see colitis myocarditis and um, that is also one potential cause. Also, Chagas in certain areas where it is uh, endemic can cause myocarditis. Um, in Europe, it's estimated that there are about 120,000 cases. In the US, it's up to 1 million. So because of migration, of course, we're also going to see this in our areas. In terms of viral myocarditis, what are the, the main culprit viruses that you see in, in clinical practice? In clinical practice, most of the times we cannot even detect the virus anymore. I mean, right now it's COVID, um, but in most cases we've done a very comprehensive study that we published in Circulation Heart Failure in 2020 with colleagues from Columbia University where we did a screening for all known viruses with a method that's called VIRCAP-seq. It's a screening method where you can check simultaneously for all known vertebrate DNA and RNA viruses. And we investigated especially also giant cell myocarditis because there until recently was not really established if it's a immune response or if there's also a virus that causes the giant cells, like in herpes infections, for example, where you also see giant cells. And we couldn't identify any viruses. So this supports the hypothesis that by the time the myocarditis um, really causes symptoms where you have myocarditis, where you have the diagnosis of myocarditis, by that time the virus is already eliminated and all that's left is the immune reaction which um, sustains the myocarditis. So that's why uh, immunosuppressants become much more the focus of new therapies or immunomodulation rather than antiviral drugs. Got you. That makes sense. Yeah, because it, it's very rare, isn't it, that we ever use antiviral drugs in myocarditis certainly in my experience but yes they never fully got established there was research in the past but never really made it through and uh, myocarditis has many different presentations you have a lovely figure in your paper figure five a really good summary of all the basically a spectrum really from almost asymptomatically discovered myocarditis through to fulminant heart failure do you want to talk a little bit about the different ways that it can present to the clinician and why we ought to be always have it in the front of our mind as, a, as an option, maybe a differential for acute coronary syndrome sometimes. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, acute myocarditis, as you say, often presents like acute coronary syndrome with chest pain, dyspnea. We also um, described it once as gripping heart syndrome because the patients often describe it as if somebody would hold the heart in their hand and then press together. So that's how it feels for them. 
and they they present very acute with a lot of pain often so you many undergo cardiac catheterization because um acute coronary syndrome is the first suspicion um but overall the clinical course is mild in the majority it's usually in 80 to 90% of cases we see um they have only mild symptoms they later on may develop into a chronic inflammatory state that over time may cause um, decreased left ventricular ejection fraction or even heart failure and more fibrosis, but the majority is mild. However, there are also more severe cases where you may have a left ventricular ejection fraction lower than 50%, where you have severe arrhythmias. They may have presented with syncope due to severe arrhythmias. So that's always a red flag when somebody presents after syncope. Um, and also if they have low cardiac output state, those are at higher risk for uh, long-term complications. There was also a publication on that that described it very well. And um, in terms of actually diagnosing myocarditis, any tips for cardiologists here? Are there any criteria we should be using to make the diagnosis? Yes, I would like to start with the endomyocardial biopsy because that we use for less cases and then everything else is MRI. So the the endomyocardial biopsy we would do when the results change clinical management. And that is currently, um, since this is usually immunosuppressant therapy, we use them in severe arrhythmias. So if there's a severe myocarditis. So endomyocardial biopsy we would do if somebody has severe arrhythmias, at least moderately decreased left ventricular ejection fraction, if they have higher degree AV block or if they're hemodynamically unstable. Those are the cases that usually benefit from immunosuppressive therapy. And that's why we would do endomyocardial biopsy to be sure they have myocarditis and also to rule out active viral infection. They usually don't have that, but to be safe and also to know the definitive diagnosis because there are different types of myocarditis that require different immunosuppressive therapy. A giant cell myocarditis requires much more aggressive immunosuppression with combination therapy as compared to a lymphocytic myocarditis, for example. And then everyone else would get the cardiac MRI if myocarditis is suspected. Also, PET-CT is very important for the diagnosis of sarcoidosis. So we had many patients where on MRI, there was no diagnosis made, but then because of the high suspicion for sarcoidosis, we did a PET-CT and then we could identify it. And um, red flags for sarcoidosis are signs and symptoms that show that the septum is involved because it preferentially affects the septum. So if they have a complex conduction block at a young age, or if they have septum hypokinesis while the rest of the ventricle is doing well, those should alert you that the patient may have sarcoidosis. And we actually do know that that the PET-CT was correct because later on we did get tissue diagnosis. So it was indeed underdiagnosed with MRI. So just in summary, so you're saying that for definitive diagnosis, of course, biopsy would be required. Um, yes. 
but you don't do biopsy very often because patients don't necessarily uh, need. Obviously, there's a risk of doing endomyocardial biopsy. And unless you think it'll change the treatment you give them, you would rely on echocardiography, but almost always MRI in every case. Is that a fair summary? Yes, because the mild cases, usually they resolve spontaneously. Yeah, They don't require aggressive immunotherapy. So therefore, the biopsy would not change the management. And there are certain risks with biopsy. They are low, but they can happen. And so we don't risk benefit evaluation would point towards being conservative. And in terms of things like electrocardiograms or EKGs, um, is there anything that you look for specifically on there to give you a clue as to either the type of myocarditis or you know whether myocarditis is present? The type we cannot tell myocarditis causes similar EKG changes as acute coronary syndrome. So usually they get an evaluation for acute coronary syndrome. And then if that is excluded, then you evaluate for myocarditis. They can have PR depressions because of the pericardial involvement. So like in pericarditis, they can have very diffuse ST elevations like in pericarditis because often the pericardium is involved. They can have conduction defects. If those are more um, advanced, then you should think of more severe myocarditis, especially giant cell dust that also. And those are the ones that you should biopsy if they have advanced uh, conduction defects, uh, AV block two and higher. Fantastic. And let's talk a little bit about cardiac MRI. You've already brought it up as being very useful uh, in this patient group. And, and the technique itself has evolved even over the last five years, hasn't it, with new criteria to help you diagnose from the MR um, images. Can you talk about a little bit about the, the way that you do cardiac MR and what particular measurements are important in diagnosing myocarditis and maybe even helping to give you a prognosis uh, for whether the patient's mm-hmm. going to recover quickly or whether there might be you know, risk of longer-term heart failure? Absolutely. So there is the, the edema that we can see on MRI, which would point towards acute myocarditis. Often we see late gadolinium enhancement. There, the distribution of the late gadolinium enhancement can give us hints if it's more likely myocarditis or more likely a sign of previous infarction. So that's why we should always know the coronary status, ideally also when we interpret an MRI. So ideally, we always get a coronary CT at least also to make sure that the coronaries are fine if we haven't had a cardiac catheterization. Um, And the distribution of the late gadolinium enhancement is important for prognostic predictions. As you notice, the septum, for example, if the septum is involved, especially the mid-septum, that is a sign for a higher risk for cardiovascular complications. Also, because there's the conduction system in that area, then uh, the extent of late gadolinium enhancement, we know if late gadolinium enhancement affects more than 15, 1-5% of the left ventricle then you have a higher risk for severe cardiovascular complications and arrhythmias also. You can see the extent of fibrosis. If somebody has very extensive late gadolinium enhancement, we typically get a follow-up MRI after four to five months to see um, where the patient is heading, if he's improving or if we need to use more aggressive therapies. 
And let's move on to therapies, Dr. Heidecker, in terms of the latest developments, but maybe let's even start with the sort of basic therapies in patients who come in just with, let's say, a mild episode of myocarditis. What are the kind of management points that you would uh, look to start? So the mild ones, we just treat with standard heart failure therapy. If it's mildly decreased with the ejection fraction, we just give beta blockers and ACE inhibitors in a low dose. Um, if we see inflammation on endomyocardial biopsy, if it's a lymphocytic myocarditis, we usually treat with prednisolone and acetyoprine, like it was done in the TMIC study and other well-established studies that have shown benefits of immunosuppressive therapy. And then for giant cell myocarditis sarcoidosis, you need more aggressive therapies. You use combinational therapies and you have to treat them longer. Also, there are new therapies developing. So the, the new movement is towards, um, immunomodulation of subtypes of cells. So there's a lot of research about which subtypes of cells are relevant for the inflammation and how we can best target them. And also there are multi-center studies for immunosuppression coming. So before there were only single center studies and um, small clinical trials, but now there will be a large multi-center study, a prospective one for comparing mucophenolate and prednisolone versus placebo in chronic inflammatory cardiomyopathy that's virus negative. And we're also going to be participating in this study. And I guess some patients who present on the severe end of the spectrum will need mechanical support. But that is right. in your experience, what sort of percentage of people come in in such a state that they need to have this kind of support? Are we talking one in a hundred or even less than that? Even less than that. Um, fortunately, the, those are very rare. Um, those are usually giant cell myocarditis patients. They, they can present very fulminant. And nowadays with the combined immunosuppressive therapy, we also have a very good chance to improve them and them not even needing mechanical circulatory support. The ones that we have to send for transplant, the ones I've seen that had to go for transplant were really the ones who were diagnosed late, where you had already extensive scarring in the ventricle and thin walls, then you can't get that muscle back. Once everything is scarred and thin, no matter what immunosuppression you give, you cannot get that back. So early diagnosis is really key. And what do we need to tell patients? Let's say a patient has had a, a fairly mild case of myocarditis, been in hospital a few days, now gone home. Are there any restrictions, things that they should avoid doing once they get back home in terms of exercise in particular? Mm -hmm. I know this can be a real issue for younger patients who have myocarditis, recover well, and then they're told that they can't exercise. What, what do you tend to tell people as they leave the hospital? Yeah, exactly. You're mentioning an important point, especially athletes who love exercise are at high risk for myocarditis, so it often hits them. Um, we tell them as per HA and ESC recommendations to stop exercise for at least three months, um, to, to stop for three to six months. The reason is that during exercise, they have the higher risk for arrhythmias, for severe arrhythmias that may also cause sudden cardiac death. 
and we've done a study, a prospective one, and we did 24-hour EKG and echo and 24-hour EKG, echo and exercise stress testing to peak exercise after three months after myocarditis to make sure they have no risk of arrhythmias. And then we let them exercise again and we followed them up to 12 months. And there were no issues in those patients, no cardiovascular complications. And I would recommend before the patient starts exercise again, um, they should do the same thing, 24-hour EKG stress test and echo to make sure there are no risk for ectopy and arrhythmias. Only in those who have recovered, if they still have chest pain after three months or if they still have decreased ejection fraction, I would wait longer. So in those patients where you need to wait longer, they can do day-to-day walking, that kind of thing, but you wouldn't recommend anything that really increases heart rate. Is that what you're saying? Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And just um, looking to the future a little bit, Dr. Heidecker, what are you most excited about? What are you waiting for in terms of clinical trial results, new medications, new diagnostics? What gets you really excited in this field? Yeah, I'm excited that now there's so much interest in myocarditis. That's good for this area. Um, there's a lot of public attention to the area. So also that will stimulate research and will help us to move faster towards personalized therapies. There is a, a need for a better understanding of the subtypes of myocarditis and there a lot of groups are doing research in the area. So I think therapies will become more targeted. Also, I think we'll develop more blood biomarkers like a paper that the, where we described the microRNA with our colleagues from Spain um, that, that also worked very well. And something else that we are working on is magnetocardiography. Um, there will be a publication coming out soon, and that will be a very interesting area in order to diagnose it and monitor. Wow. What is magnetocardiography? Sorry, um, yeah, excuse yeah. my no, ignorance. No, no, no <laughs> nobody knows about this. It's a, a technology that has been described already a while back, but it hasn't really been applied in inflammatory cardiomyopathy. So it measures the magnetic field of the heart. Um, the magnetic field is created by the flux of ions because ions cause a induce an electromagnetic field in the heart and then you can measure the vector of this field in an individual patient and we describe changes in inflammatory cardiomyopathy. So that will be coming out soon and we think this may be actually a very promising technology in the field of cardiology. Wow that does sound exciting. <laughs> I look forward to reading that paper when it comes out but I just want to finish by thanking you for joining me today. It's been a wonderful discussion. I've learned loads. Hopefully the audience has learned loads as well. And the paper will be free to access for a few weeks if it's not already open access. But yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.